So we change scenes once again, and uh, this next section uh, of this um, chapter, this called lengthy part of the book called Practicing Dharma, is called Lay Practice, Don't Let the Monkey Burn Down Your House. So this is uh, Lumpur giving advice to uh, some uh, Thai people who'd come to, to visit the monastery, as far as I can tell. Buddhism teaches us to make earnest efforts in the things we do, but our actions should not be mixed with desire. They should be performed with the aim of letting go and realizing non-attachment. What we do, we do what we need to do, but with letting go. The Buddha taught this. But this is tiring. There's no great enthusiasm for it. People in the world do whatever they do to get something. Like the people who come to see you in your capacities as doctors and administrators. It's because they want something. Generally, whatever is done is done because of a wish to get something. And attachment and clinging to things becomes a way of life. But, we do our own work according to our responsibilities. And if we act like this, doing work that is correct with right understanding, we can be at ease. When planting a tree... If you want to do it the right way and get fruit from it, how should you go about it in order to have a relaxed mind? You do that which is your responsibility. Getting hold of the sapling is your job. Digging the hole is your job. Planting it, fertilizing and watering it, that is your job. Keeping the insects off, all that is your job. That's it. Stop here. How fast or slow it grows isn't your job. Let go of this part. You make the causes in planting and taking care of the tree, but you don't think, when will it be fully grown? When will there be fruit? That isn't your business. It's the plants. If you think, I've watered it and all the rest, now how can I force it to grow faster? That won't help. It isn't your responsibility. But there's a connection. If you've done your work properly, the tree is bound to grow according to nature. If you think like this, you'll be okay. If you want it to grow in a day or two after all your hard work, that's mistaken. There's no happiness in that way. Don't think about it too much at this point. It's a matter of making causes. If the causes are good, the result is bound to be good. Because all things are born of causes. We have our duties, so we do them to the full. But we act without attachment taking care of our own responsibilities. If we try to take care of the tree's responsibilities, we will get upset. The important thing is to make the causes good. Then the result will be good. If we think like this, there will be lightness of mind. Otherwise, we're doing the other's work. Watching the tree today, going back to watch it tomorrow, trying to see it grow. So this is called right livelihood. But there are lots of ordinary things that will bother us. Insects pester the person taking care of the tree and upset him. When there are a lot of tasks and a lot of people, there can be many issues, friction between people and so forth, to trouble our minds when we're trying to do our best. This is normal. For example, blame and praise are paired judgments. Without criticism, there is no praise. Without praise, there's no criticism. We have to be able to contend with both. We should realize that these things are helping us, waking us. That's all they are, wake-up calls. But we don't see it like that. If someone disparages us, 
we are immediately angry and heavy-hearted, and if we're praised, we give a sigh of contentment. It's like this, but we don't realise that they are a pair. We can do our work well now, but before, we didn't know how to do things right. One comes from the other. From knowing what is wrong, we come to know what is right. This is really very natural. If we have such understanding, then letting go will follow. This is something for all of you to make efforts at, to think about and practice. So many uh, useful items in there. So right at the beginning, when Lumpur was saying um, uh, our actions should not be mixed with desire, they should be performed with the aim of letting go and realizing non-attachment. So this is the crucial difference between tanha, which is most accurately translated as, as craving, and that always has a self-centered uh, quality, either consciously or unconsciously, um, but it's all about me and getting stuff for me or, or protecting me. Um, and the other kind of desiring, which is chanda. So to do our work, we make the effort to carry out the the things that are our duties and useful ways of looking after our life and the people around us and the work that we need to do. Um, so chanda is interest or zeal or enthusiasm. So it's it's a directing of attention and effort and energy, but uh, it doesn't have that same self-centered quality. It can do, like karma chanda, sort of um, excitement over sense pleasure, but chanda in and of itself is the directable uh, directing quality of the mind so zeal enthusiasm interest and so it's imp it's important to recognize without chanda nothing can get done so that the 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 ch uh, chanda is the very first of what are called the four bases of success so the buddha's enlightenment was based on chanda you had to be interested to end suffering and, and to awaken so chanda is a prerequisite condition so that kind of desire is absolutely essential the other kind of desire, tanha, is the, uh, is the major troublemaker. So it's important to get to know the, the difference between the two. Like uh, T.S. Eliot used the uh, analogy in one of his uh, one of his poems, like the stinging nettle and the dead nettle next to each other in the in the hedgerow. <coughs> they look like similar plants, but they're quite they're, they're actually quite different. One will sting you, the other one won't. But they look like each other, and they grow side by side in the same hedgerow. So tanha and chanda are often side by side growing in the same <laughs> mental hedgerow and uh, easy to mistake one for the other. But if chanda is what motivates uh, our action, then action is, is done appropriate to time and place, situation is not about about me or any kind of um, yeah, ego, ego boost or ego protection, but rather it's, say, a, a, a mindful response to um, the living situation and what's going to be of benefit to others. So that uh, when when Lumpur is encouraging that uh, that quality is in contradistinction to the worldly way is I want to get something for me that we we do things for uh, to get something to get some result to get some kind of benefit uh, for me or for my family or for my my group um, and that uh, so Tanha is a, a very potent force in there. But he says, uh, we do our own work according to our responsibilities. If we, are, if we act like this, doing work that is correct, with right understanding, we can be at ease. And Lumpur Chao was one who did a lot of work. He was, <laughs> he, he was uh, very engaged, both physically building the monastery and, and uh, engaged in practical activities, uh, and also in teaching. He was extraordinarily abundant and generous in his 
uh, readiness to share his understanding and take care of the physical tasks of the monastery. So then, uh, a very good example about planting a tree, like anyone who's ever planted something and sort of hovered over it, you know, with a <laughs> tape measure, like, how big is it today? Or, are, those, uh, are, the, are the flowers turning into fruits yet? You know, how long will it be till I can get my tomatoes? And that's dukkha, to, for, uh, in my experience. And so you create the... So then, um, emphasizing the creating the causes, the planting of good causes. Just you create the causes and then let go. Uh, and, uh, but also in saying, um, if the causes are good, the result is bound to be good. Uh, that's, a, a, I would say, a, a kind of generalization because knowing that the causes are all good, it takes... <laughs> That's where the wisdom faculty comes in. Like, okay, what's the intention behind this? Or what am I assuming? Uh, uh, what do I take for granted here? Or am I um, taking into account other people's perspective? Or, you know, I think this is a good thing, and I think we've got everything together here. So um, f- figuring out uh, and getting a feel for causes, planting good causes, then it helps a lot to reflect, to consider, uh, what am I taking for granted here? Or am, I making, am I making assumptions? Also, to consult with your friends, get input from people that you respect, people who are knowledgeable, people who are also involved. So that uh, that is also important to understand. You know, if, okay, if all the causes are, are really good and wholesome and in tune with the the time, the place, situation. So, but if we operate like that, if we just create the causes and then let go. Um, then uh, he says, if we do, if we work like this, if we think like this, there will be lightness of mind. Then along the way, of course, there are <laughs> people and insects and stuff happens. You know that, that any effort that we undertake, there's always other things going on. We, we're part of a living system. So there are the people that that you live with, and the uh, the you, you put in a, a plant which has um, got all kinds of uh, attractive juices, and so insects. Show up who want to drink those juices and and um, take advantage of the of the plant, and so um, that uh, the and there's a, a couple of, of good examples. You know, if you if you think okay, I'm going to plant this plant and it's going to grow as I as I wish and it's going to be as I as I hope, or it's going to look like the picture on the packet of seeds, <laughs> then it's not going to work out that way, and so. Um, uh, you know, Lumpur is encouraging the sense of of getting a a a, 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 a feeling for uh, an intuitive sense of being part of a natural order and how different factors play into the picture. So uh, many years ago, um, when I was uh, living at Harnham up in the uh, in the north in the early eighties, mid eighties, uh, somebody brought uh, a, a plant, uh, like a pot plant from. Uh, a, uh, a flower shop, and uh, and so I had uh, uh, adopted this this plant. I had it in in uh, in my room, and uh, as probably many of you know, that often uh, in these kind of shops, they they f- overfeed the the, f- the plants so they're they're in full bloom. They have lots of flowers, lots of buds, and they're wow, really kind of powerful and strong. And but they they get a bit exhausted from the extra overfeeding. And so when this pl- when this this flower it was a, some kind of a white flower was given it was, had these sort of strong white um, abundant flowers, um, and it was uh, uh, and it was in that sort of state of, of 
of strength and flourishing for about a week, and then <laughs> it all started uh, fading. It was getting getting exhausted, and so then these green flies started showing up. And so then I got a paintbrush, and I was trying to take all the green fly off with a paintbrush and sort of move them out the window and invite them to live somewhere else. But again, as most people probably know, green fly breed at an incredible rate. And so no matter how often I moved these green fly, then they kept coming back and kept multiplying. And so, um, so I was getting upset with the, all these green fly that were <laughs> invading my plant and you know, feeding on, my, on my, my plant and making my plant more sickly than it was. And then uh, I remembered this this E. E. Cummings poem um, called uh, uh, "Nobody Loses All of the Time," and it's about his uh, uh, uncle Sol, who uh, who uh, uh, um, uh, whether it was E. E. Cummings' real uncle Sol, I don't know. But the, the poem it goes along the lines of something like, "My uncle Sol decided he wanted to be a farmer, and so he he moved out of the city and moved to the country and bought a plot of land." And then, uh, and then he uh, he, uh, uh, he he got a, a bunch of chickens, and then the foxes came in, and the foxes attacked the chickens. And so, yeah. So then he planted uh, planted beans, and then uh, when he planted beans, then they, uh, all the other um, the uh, the bugs came in and ate all the all the beans. And goes one thing after another after another, and uh, finally, uh, Uncle Sol you know, gets fed up with the whole thing. The whole farm fails. And then, and then he he dies at the at the end of the poem. And then, and we and uh, we we gave him a great send off. We gave him a great funeral, and uh, we all cried like a river. And then Uncle Sol started a worm farm. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, he finally got his farm. You know, seeding the worms in the ground. It's like, okay, Uncle Sol got his farm. But yeah, it was everything that he tried trying to make it happen. And then you know, all these other uh, creatures and other things came along. So I thought, I will, rather than having my plant that's being invaded by these uh, these green fly, I'll start a green fly farm. So I just sort of changed what was happening, and so I just thought, okay, this is my little green fly, my green fly farm, and it was quite successful. You know, as long as the, <laughs> the plant was alive and the green fly were were abundant, so I just changed your attitude. You realise you are not in command here. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, if you're trying to control, if, if you think you're in command. Then um, the uh, you, you are, what you're doing is you're creating dukkha, but uh, you're not. We are not in control. And uh, so, yeah, let's see. There was. It's also uh, a, and there's not that many monastics here, but maybe there's a few junior monastics. When you're a junior monastic, an Anagarika or an Anagarika novice. In the early years of monastic life, often the fantasy, the fantasy comes to mind: when I have my own place, when I'm in charge. Now, I'm not reading anybody's mind. This is just statistically likely that there certainly was going on in my mind. When I'm in charge, when I have my own place, then I'm going to do it like this. I have this, this, and this. These are really good. I'm never going to have that, that, or that. And when you create this sort of fantasy monastery in your mind, as an Anagarika, Anagarika, or, or, or as a junior person, then there aren't any real people there. There are these sort of blobs that just say, yes, Ajahn. <laughs> they don't have a personality. They don't have opinions. They don't have a history or a name. They're just these sort of amorphous blobs that to say, yes, Ajahn. And so we all do the chanting like this. So we all have this routine like this. 
And there are these little sort of blobby uh, monks and nuns who just say, yes, Ajahn. And that, that's it. But then as you actually live with people and the years go by and you become a, uh, you know, a new nun or a new monk and then a, a Majima and then a, a, a Terry or a Terra, then you know, you're, when, you're, when you're just starting out as an Anagaraki, you're 100% sure how, you ought to, how the monastery ought to be run. When you're a, a junior, when you're a Navaka in the first five years, then you're like 75% sure how the place should be run. When you're a Majima, after five years, you're about 50% sure about how the place should be run. When you get to be a Terra, you're like 20% sure. By the time you're a Mahatera, you realize all, <laughs> all bets are off. <laughs> when you get to 20 years, then it's like, okay, you just realize any plan you might have had or any expectation or, or a wish, uh, then out the window and you're just working with the real humans who have feelings and stories and uh, opinions and names uh, that, that that's who you're actually living with there aren't there aren't really any blobs and that um, and so in a way you know there's no such thing as as nuns or monks there is there is this nun you know this monk this novice this anagarika that uh, and when we're we are having our ideas or creating our plans, then I will have, I will plant my mango orchard or my apple orchard or my tomato plants. And it's like, well, yes, but you're not in command. This, these imaginary tomato plants will be all lined up, kind of glowing and ripening in, the, in, the, in good order so you just get the right amount of tomatoes when you need them. Like, no, <laughs> never going to be that way. So, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Any? I've got a few gardeners here, so I can relate to the, the Sylvie culture and such like. Yes? yes I remember you mentioned that uh, uh, in the very first uh, five years you wrote a book and then you felt that uh, that might be too early for you to, mm -hmm. to write, you know, in, in response to my trying to have some projects like my <laughs> script, you know, movie script. I think that that might be Shanta, you know, it's our Shanta. We like to, we like to write story, not like we wanted to be famous, but that, you know, maybe, but that's not the first thing we want. We like to tell the story. It might be. Only uh, we can only know for ourselves. Yeah. So I, uh, the first book I did, I, I um, was a, a diary of a walk I did from Chithurst to Harnham, and so that uh, I was, I, I did that walk before my fifth, my fifth rains, and so I, w I, I was writing the book and so putting it all together after I was just five, five vasa. Lumpur Sumedha had already published one book, the year before. But I was, you know, I was just a kind of a barely hatched Majima monk, and he was he was the great Ajahn. So I did manage to get my book just after his, like a year later. But uh, also, I could see for myself. I had uh, growing up, I'd had a lot of fantasies about being a writer and being so that, I, uh, uh, and I could just see that there was uh, a lot of energy, a lot of uh, sort of excitement, and the whole book production process. It was uh, quite by chance. One of the people who was the the, the um, lay support part of the lay support group, the committee for Harnam Monastery, uh, was the founder of something called the Tyneside Free Press, which was a, a kind of 
uh, workshop facility that was set up in Newcastle in order to help people to put their own books and uh, poems and posters and things into print. So, and it was designed that there were people who worked there who were experts in like a t- typography or, or artwork or, or uh, running print machines, but they also would teach you to do it for yourself. And so one of the founders of the place, Eric Taylor, was um, uh, was part of the Harnham group. So he said, why don't you come to the free press and you can put your book together there. So it was great fun. I had very good instruction by the people uh, there in the, doing the typography and the layout and how to use a, um, uh, you know, literally cu- cutting and pasting. You, you, you cut with a scalpel and you paste it with cow gum. So whenever I smell that particular kind of adhesive, I'm suddenly back in... Newcastle in the summer of 1984. So, <laughs> listening to uh, one of the people there was very fond of listening to cricket on the radio. There's a whole Radio 3 cricket commentary. Even when they aren't playing, even when rain has stopped play, they still have the cricket commentary going. It's a very, very English thing. And uh, the English team was being completely creamed by, uh, by uh, the West Indies. So I remember that that smell also takes me back to the, to the Radio Three cricket commentary. I'd never listened to it before, but that that was going on the radio the whole time we were in the studio together. So um, yeah, there was a kind of excitement and involvement and the whole process of putting it together. So I thought, well, what do I really want to focus on as a, as a monk? And you know, I'm a junior monk in a in a in a big community, and so I thought, and then. In uh, just the year after I had finished doing that book, and we, we printed it, I think, at just the end of 84. So July of 85, Lumpur Sumedho invited me to come down here to Amravati to help out. So Amravati was definitely the priority. And so I just decided, okay, well, I'll just uh, leave that whole thing aside, and if it, if it comes around to there, it's an opportunity or a call to do another book, then I'll think about it. But I don't need to be... Uh, doing that. It's interesting also, just on a, a slightly tangential note, uh, I used to write quite a lot of poems. Um, and then when I, I went, uh, went to America and to, we started a Bayagiri monastery because I was the co-abbot there, I uh, literally I kind of wrote, a, wrote a, a couple of, uh, a pair of very short poems on the day we arrived, June the 1st, and then nothing for like years and years and years. And um, one of the, uh, actually Sister Tania, as she was, as she came over and she was helping to, to co-lead a retreat with me there in, I think, about 2006. And she was, and she's quite a gifted poet. And she said, you know, and she's from New Zealand uh, and was, uh, had been in the community about 15 years by that time. And so she said, Sia Jen, you know, any poems arriving? <laughs> Nothing. Nothing these days, and we, we talked about it. And, I, and she said, "Well, why do you think that they've that stopped?" And I said, "I think the monastery became the poem. That the sort of while I was in the position of being second monk, third monk, kind of in, there was more space for that. But then the muse was not going to be crowded, and so if I'm in the position in kind of at, the, at the front of things, the, the crafting the monastery became the sort of three-dimensional poem. At least that's how." I tended to see it. So I still haven't written very many poems since then. A few, but not, not that many. Not as much as I used to. But yeah, only we, going back to the, your original question, I think only you can know whether it's Chanda or Tanha. Yeah, we have to know for ourselves. I, for me, I even started this project when I was the, um, you know, uh, at monastic 
And I did try to get Nobu to make the movie about Buddha, remember? Not like I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. No one doing it. And so I, I went and studied writing the script. And I had enjoyed, like you, mm -hmm. spent the whole time. But now, it's back of my mind. So I'm not sure it's Chan Tao. You have to, yeah, only you can know. <laughs> okay, so to continue. The Buddha taught that certain actions are good, but a few people will practice while others have no interest or knowledge and behave in contrary ways. This might disturb you. You should just view it as the way things are in this world. It has to be like this. Now, when people criticize or slander us, we can't bear it. Yet, soon enough, it'll happen again. If there is praise, there'll be blame. They are a pair. Understanding this, we come back to resolve them. We cannot have only one. That's impossible. They occur continuously in this life. They are obstacles we must face. When we work, we have to experience obstacles. If there are no obstacles, there's no suffering. If there's no suffering, we don't think about things. Isn't that so? Thus the Buddha spoke of the truth of suffering. If you think according to Dharma, you can come to have ease of mind, gradually teaching yourselves. Think about this a little. You plant a mango tree with the desire to get fruit. But will every single mango be edible? When you're enjoying ripe mangoes, do you ever consider how many were lost or rejected? If you get discouraged by considering this, you might not want to plant trees in the first place. Many of the mangoes fall and rot before they're ripe. Others never ripen well, so what's the use? Well, it's like this. Some fall and some you'll have to throw away, but you plant and take care of the trees. You can eat mangoes today just because it's like this. If you think, who wants to plant fruit trees when the mangoes just fall off prematurely? Then you won't be eating any mangoes. You have to keep coming back to look for the cause of things. But you live in a nice comfortable place, so you won't feel like doing this. You need to live in a place that's not full of conveniences and make a real and make real convenience arise. In truth, if you practice correctly, there'll always be a way. When people slander you, you have to be able to bear it. If you can't resolve it, you'll live with suffering right up to the day you die. But again, many uh, useful and interesting points there. Um, that uh, some people practice, some people don't. <laughs> some people have no, no interest. Um, some people behave in contrary ways. So you create a, an attractive food source and then beings go up to, you know, turn up to, to, to eat it. Um, and uh, I, I mentioned a few weeks ago how that was one of the, the earliest insights I had in the forest in Thailand because the kutis don't have any glass in the windows. The windows are just like a wooden, a wooden flaps that you could just prop open. And um, there wasn't much in the way of mosquito nets either. So, uh, you know, you, you sit in your kuti getting, you know, or in the sala, getting irritated by the mosquitoes showing up and eating you. And you think, well, hang on a minute. I just moved into their place. They were living here before I was. So I'm this sort of attractive heat producer. They, uh, mosquitoes, they, they uh, apparently, they see by infrared. So you're this sort of blazing sign, like a kind of neon... <laughs> you know, uh, 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 a neon uh, board uh, dis yeah, announcing, demonstrating, hey, look, free food, you know, show up. And that, uh, so the, why should they, they can see that 
the, the lights, the, the, the infrared heat kind of pouring out of the, the sides of the cootie. The, so they think, hey, there's a new restaurant opened up. You know, so why should you be resentful if you just moved into their place and then they they show and you're sending out this signal? Why should you be resentful? They show up and eat you. It's just like, who's the fool? So um, that is you know, the way that things are in, in nature. Um, you should view it as the way things are in this world. It has to be like this. So just uh, this is the way that uh, the world works. It, uh, yeah, the, the time when the most ignorant, uh, uh, impulsive, and the selfish person in the world still wants to help everybody else <laughs> is, is going to be a, a, the humanity will have evolved far beyond anything that we can recognize today. So there's always going to be people around who are contrary, who are selfish, who are lazy, or opinionated. That's just, statistically, that's just how it's going to be. And there will be people who are good hearted and kind and self sacrificial and and generous and everything in between that's just statistically how uh, how the, the 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 natural order works and then his little piece here about if there are no obstacles there's no suffering if there's no suffering we don't think about things isn't that so so that might seem a bit contrary <laughs> but uh you know Lumpur Chow would also often point out if things are too comfortable then we just doze off. We we don't. Uh, you know, the mind says, "Okay, I've had enough to eat, and there's nothing oppressive, nothing difficult." <sniffs> Nap time. We just that's instinctively how we are. We just if we're comfortable, something just says, "Okay, there's no danger, nothing to get, nothing to get rid of." Okay, switch off. And it's just not blaming that or saying that it's bad or wrong. Just like yeah, that's that's a habit that we have. Uh, part of our animal ancestry is, okay, we're in a safe place, full stomach. Uh, no threats. Okay, <laughs> catch up on the on the sleep. We'll go and find the next batch of food later on. So, um, this is uh, talking about the skillful use of dukkha, and that the dukkha gets our attention. So, um, that, and also that obstacles uh, is how we raise our game, rather than thinking of, of being uh, challenges or obstacles or difficulties of being something that we really don't want to have or that we uh, we uh, life would be so much better if we didn't have any obstacles or, or difficulties it's a change of attitude whereby that this is what we learn from these are our teachers this is how we we raise our game as it were and so that uh, the um, uh, that the uh, that skillful use of uh, of difficulty is uh, is you know, very much part of the Buddha's teaching, and I was also re- reminded that uh, in the Shakespeare's play *As You Like It*, um, there's this very, uh, a very well phrased little passage where this uh, duke has been uh, usurped by his younger brother, kicked out of his dukedom, and he's off living with a few followers in the forest. And uh, and he makes this very nice little speech. I think it's very nice. Where he says, "Sweet are the uses of adversity." And then he goes into this sort of beautiful thing, like you know, here in the forest, the um, we hear uh, we hear sermons from the trees and the the the, the stream um, the, from the rocks in the the river. The, the sound of the stream uh, makes music for us. The the leaves rustling in the trees, they are the sermons that we hear. The music of the of the streams running over the stones, and that um, and so uh, that appreciation of of nature is coming from the fact that he got kicked out of his his palace and shoved off into the into the woods by his his usurping younger brother 
So uh, sweet are the uses of adversity. Uh, and it, 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 he, he then plays on this legend that that toads have a jewel buried inside the middle of their head. So it goes, sweet are the uses of adversity that, like the toad, ugly and venomous, yet has a yet has a, a jewel within its head. So that there's a precious treasure inside the ugly and venomous. So that's in as you like it if you're interested. So um, you have to keep coming back and looking for the cause of things, but you live in a nice, comfortable place, so you won't feel like doing this. And having him having said. Uh, uh, generally, um, if you are doctors and administrators, it seems like it was a sort of group of, of fairly um, high-ranking folks from uh, from the local city or, or from uh, the local government who'd come to to pay their respects and receive uh, some dhamma teachings that day. So he was assuming, also by seeing what they're wearing, the kind of clothes they had or the, their body language, you could say, "Oh, these people are ones who like comfort and convenience and sort of uh, eat well and such like." He would. Pick up those kind of signals from the uh, from the, um, the the folks coming to visit, and and also intuiting that they would be upset when people slandered them or criticised them. And, you know, often high-ranking people are very prone to getting huffy and uh, irritated when anyone um, crosses them or, or insults them. Also, that uh, talking about the um, the way that the trees work again. This is a sense of watching, looking at nature, and like Duke, Duke Senior was the name of the Duke in As You Like It. Um, the uh, the if you watch how nature works, that uh, again when when we have a when we pick up an apple or a, or an orange orange or a, a mango, how many of us think? What about all the apples that didn't make it? The ones that didn't? They were, they were only just. Uh, <laughs> they were a flower, they were a blossom, and the blossom got hit by a frost and they didn't make it. We think, oh, that's a nice apple, I'll, I'll have that one, full stop. <laughs> we don't think about the people who looked after the trees or the, the tree itself or the other apples that didn't make it or the people who put them in boxes and put them on, on trucks and ships and, and got them here. That uh, It's a lot to think about, <laughs> but it, I, I do feel it's that sense of appreciating the causes, where things come from, and particularly those looking after the kitchen, um, uh, Ahsoka and the kitchen team, everybody here who's working with lots of foodstuffs, that is it's interesting, helpful to to think about that broader picture. Where does this come from? Who is involved? What's what's had to come together in order for this to be available to to nourish the community uh, today? And that that sense of of uh, participating in an organic system, a natural system changes the view rather than uh, oh we haven't got enough of x <laughs> my plan is being foiled Duh! you know then it, it's a different uh, approach to to relating to the natural order so uh, that um, it's good to consider that when, when you're enjoying a ripe mango do you ever consider how many were lost or rejected and then just just watching how trees work and you know, flowers and plants and how many buds come out but never turn into to fruits uh, of any kind, and also the ones that are edible by humans and the ones that are not edible by humans, so that uh, we can the, just noticing the way that we judge and rank things. So, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes, Martin. Mm, yeah. 
fruit trees in our garden, I noticed that um, it's often the ones that have got um, a grub in them or something awful you might reject, but actually they are from the sweetest fruit. Mm-hmm. There's a Dhamma talk in there. <laughs> <laughs> like Chuang Tzu's tree. The <laughs> yeah, so if you reject it, you throw it like, oh, this is rubbish, it's got a hole of it, it's bad. But actually, if you cut carefully and end up with something that's more delicious mm-hmm. sometimes than the, than the one that was apparently perfect. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, in Chuang Tzu, if I remember correctly, in Chinese, people can straighten out my poor memory if uh, I got this wrong. He talks about uh, a, a tree uh, in the forest that was, it was so kind of gnarly, it, it was so bent and, and, and distorted that the wood could never be used for any, to build anything and it, and it wouldn't burn very well so that uh, it would never be hacked up for firewood and that the insects didn't like it because the, you know, the bark tasted badly. So it turned out to be the, you know, the oldest tree in the forest because <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't useful to everybody and it was this kind of ugly, distorted, poisonous tree but then it, it flourished because it was useless. <laughs> everybody left it alone. Is that reasonably close? Yes. Very good. I haven't read it for a long time but uh, it's um, a, a good example about how we judge things. Some people ask me, Lumpur, if we don't kill any living creatures, how can we survive? If we stop killing mosquitoes, they'll bite us. Well, how many years have you been killing mosquitoes? Well, I've been doing it since I was a child. Well, are the mosquitoes all gone yet? Even if you spend this whole lifetime sitting here killing mosquitoes, they won't be finished. If the mosquitoes won't stop... It's better for you to stop trying to kill them. Then there won't be anything. I.e., there won't be any dukkha. <laughs> there, there won't be any any problematicness. If you want to keep on struggling and competing, you'll always be losing. The way of the animal realm is that when they sense a source of food, they go to feed. They don't see things the way people do. So let's elevate our minds above the level of animals. If we want to play with the mosquitoes like this, we are always losing. I'm just saying these things for you to think about. If you want to kill, go ahead and kill. But you won't make an end of mosquitoes, I guarantee it. If you want to contend with something that can't be finished, when can you reach an end of it? Killing mosquitoes won't make an end of mosquitoes. In a place that has mosquitoes, such as Thailand, I recommend that since they won't cease and desist, we should do so. Then it's finished. The issue is finished. Escape in this way. What will we do if we can't kill mosquitoes? We might think that the Buddha's teaching is too refined, telling us not to kill mosquitoes. What use are mosquitoes? Right. That's our thinking. If we could know the feelings of mosquitoes, they might be saying, what use are the humans? So, what should we do? I'm just speaking off the top of my head, but we have to think these things through, back and forth and we can come to understand better. What use are mosquitoes? They just come to drink our blood. This is their use. They have to seek their food. If we build a house for ourselves, really, it is not only our house. 
Lizards come to stay. Mice come to live here. They don't know whose house it is. They only see it as a place of shelter, so they come to live here. Then we get angry. Hey, the mice are biting my pillows and mats. That's a very, very common condition in, I don't know about the rest of Thailand, certainly northeast Thailand, that the kapok that they're used to stuff pillows and, uh, and mats with, the, 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 mat, the, 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 uh, the mice and, and the rats, they love that for building nests. It's absolutely perfect. And it's got seeds in as well, so they get a little bit to eat as well, as having good padding for their nests. So, so that um, there's a whole science to, to storing pillows <laughs> in Kapok in, in northeast Thailand to, to try and not make them into mouse nests. So, but they don't know that. Hey, the mice are biting my pillows and mats. The mice don't know anything about it. They see some usefulness in doing that. They can make a nest, a place for their young. That's just their way. They aren't trying to steal anything from us. If we have wisdom beyond the animal level, we'll take care of ourselves and gain some understanding. There'll be no problem. Dharma should get to the root of things like this. So a very good, uh, very good example. <laughs> so that uh, the um, things are finished in terms of finished as a problem or finished as something that's burdensome or, or difficult. We just have to change our attitude uh, like the my green fly farm <laughs> in Harlem all those years ago and that sense that we share a life this is not my life that I, you know, it's, my, uh, it's my life, I'll do what I like with it but it's a, it's a shared life we depend on, on a whole living system and, and we affect and are affect, and affected by the whole living and natural, natural system so it's a participatory life it's not just my, my life we're not in, in command, we're not in charge uh, and speaking of classical references, uh, even further back than Shakespeare, <laughs> so in uh, Oedipus uh, Tyrannos, Oedip uh, the um, by Sophocles, there's a, a, a part where uh, Oedipus, um, his I think it's his uncle Creon, um, says, "Think no longer that you are in command here. Uh, think only how, when you were, you sowed the seeds for your own destruction." compelling comment <laughs> think no longer that you are in command here think only how when you were you sowed the seeds for your own destruction yeah. I got that as an email from the uh, Abhayagiri's monastery lawyer one day with no attached message <laughs> is Arthur trying to tell me something <laughs> it was, I thought it was a helpful quote and I'll write that down I, I printed it up and pasted it onto the front of a, a folder I had it is, uh, is our lawyer trying to tell me something? <laughs> but, uh, I remember the quote. So Creon, yeah, Creon was the uh, Oedipus Tyrannos. The, uh, the Oedipus the king is, uh, is a whole sort of Greek, literally one of the great Greek, Greek tragedies. But it, I think uh, uh, Creon isn't exactly a hero in it, but uh, I think it's a very uh, astute observation that when we think that I am in command, that very I-ness and that sense of control that that is sowing the seeds for dukkha, for destruction, for disappointment. That the inflation of the eye <laughs> means that's ne necessarily going to be that, that inflation is going to get popped one day. So that that uh, that sense of being in control, being in command, that lack of appreciation of its participatory nature of of life, then um, we're 
we're setting ourselves up for dukkha. Cruising for bruising, to use a modern, modern expression, going from the Greeks to the to uh, Pink Floyd. <laughs> Cruising for bruising. Any questions, thoughts? Okay. Tanha is craving. If we think things through like this, we can quell it. In the books, it's called craving, but in my meditation system, I call it open wide. And the expression he used for that, I think it's an Isan term, is ah. It's like well, the mouth is, oh, you actually make the sound by the, the mouth being wide open. That uh, ah, I call it open wide. Open without shutting. This is Tanha in meditation practice. It said, there is no river equal to craving. Open wide without shutting. There's no end to suffering. Desire is not of the mouth or of the stomach. They can be satisfied. If the stomach doesn't have enough, you can eat some rice. That which is tanha is not the stomach or the mouth. Craving has no form or self. It is open wide. I've compared this to a dog. A dog is given some rice, which is very common in northeast Thailand. Dogs eat sticky rice. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's what's available. That's what's around. A dog is given some rice and eats it. One bowl, two, three, even five. Its stomach will be full, but its craving is still there, open wide. Put some more rice in front of it, and it'll lie there guarding it. If another dog shows up, it'll growl. Grrr. A chicken comes. Grrr. It shows that the stomach is not the place of craving. The mouth is not the place of craving. They can be full. But the thinking and feeling that craves is continuously open wide. The Buddha thus said, There is no river like craving. If it's open like this, it can never be satisfied or filled. If it's closed, when you pour the water, it flows off. If it's open, the water goes in and never fills it up. It just keeps on flowing in. It's like this, never satisfied, wanting all manner of things. Consider a person who is enamoured of life and doesn't think about death. When she's seriously ill, she moans and pleads, Please, give me a little more time. If you're going to take me, make it sometime in the future. Then she recovers. She falls ill again and, and then again begs, May I have a little time? Please don't take me yet. When we're strong and healthy, we don't think about death. We don't feel that we are in danger. Of course we're not beyond danger, because we haven't died. Then when we're sick, Please, I need a little more time. It's not right. It's not right to go just now. This can happen many times, and still we say, Please, not just yet. The truth is, we're afraid. We don't want to die. That's all there is to it. It's a matter of blind craving, people being attached to life. This is an example of desire. If we don't develop wisdom to know this craving, we're always in a state of suffering. Tanha is called desire. It means not being satisfied. That's a better way to put it. Someone can be free of tanha. He will still have desires, but he can, ha but he can be satisfied. Tanha cannot be satisfied. We carry it along and complain all the way. We complain of the heaviness, but don't want to put down the heavy thing. If we want a lot of things, it gets really heavy. People want a lot, but they don't want it to be heavy. This is not seeking out the facts of the matter. If we understand, there isn't a whole lot to it. It's not a big deal. We can get to the end.
So this uh, open wide w uh, sort of way of talking about tanha, that's uh, very much a Lumpur Cha um, expression. I don't know if any other Ajans ever sort of referred to it or used that kind of term. But uh, he was one who was uh, guided by his own experience, his own meditation, watching his own mind and his own cravings and, and so on, and how, uh, how they worked with, how they were, they were effectively worked with and, and how they took shape. And so that was his uh, sort of unique way of of talking about it, like a like a, a, f a frog or a, a, with, a, with a completely open mouth that just can swallow everything. So it's rather like the idea of um, getting to the end of craving by consuming every desirable object in the universe. Well, when I've consumed everything that's desirable, then desire will come to an end, right? <laughs> a lot of stuff in the universe to consume. It's like burning up or burning up uh, everything that's combustible in the universe, and then there there'll be no more fuel left. It's like it's just it's, that's not the way to get to the end of a of a fire or the end of uh, the end of uh, to get to coolness. Burn up everything that's burnable. So it's never going to work. You're never going to get to the end. And then this example, I mean, any of us who've uh, have grown up with dogs will <laughs> be aware of <laughs> this kind of behaviour that. Uh, yeah, and some dogs just don't have an off switch for their their hunger. It's just like <laughs> <laughs> they always want something more. And it's the, the the trigger that says, you know, I want more is is uh, is not being governed by whether the stomach is full or not, but it just uh, it's automatic. And so I think it's a very very good example. Um, and then when at the end where he's saying, um, uh, someone. Uh, Tanha is called desire, means not being satisfied. Someone can be free of tanha. He will still have desires, but he can be satisfied. So that chanda is independent from uh, from tanha. So we can still have desires, like desiring to help people, desiring to look after your health in a good way, you know, desiring to you know, carry out your responsibilities, desiring to, to be um, someone who's of benefit to society and so on. Um, so... The chanda, uh, chanda uh, uh, can operate very, very freely, but is the um, the drift into tanha, whether it's sense desire, or whether it's the bhava tanha, the desire to become, the desire to for defined being, or vibhava tanha, the the craving to not be, to not feel, to to not exist, to to switch off, to to be annihilated. That they are, um, uh, those are all. Um, going to be causing much more dukkha along the way but but um, being um, motivated to be helpful to be um, energetic and, and diligent in the responsibilities that you have and how you can help others then that can be uh, a kind of desire uh, that is uh, unproductive of any sort of dukkha or difficulty any questions thoughts Everything is completely clear. Very good. Okay. I think Dharma is something difficult. It's troublesome. But if we really contemplate it, it is something that can make an end of our problems. The things the Buddha taught are not impossible to practice. Among all the things the Buddha taught, that which is beyond being practiced by people does not exist. So everything he taught was doable. 
by, by humans. He only taught that which benefits us and benefits others. Things that are of no benefit to us and others he did not teach. Please consider this. If suffering occurs in your daily life, you should consider why this is happening. It might be that your children don't listen to you. Well, who made these children? <laughs> Fairly blunt piece of feedback. Who made these children? If you're suffering because of your children, actually the cause resides with you. You have to think like this, returning to the origin. If you just want to try to fix the situation by forcing them to be a certain way, it'll be beyond your means. You won't be able to accomplish it, and you'll end up in tears over your children. In truth, what is the reason? There's a cause. You have to pay attention and see what it is. Things don't just bubble up and appear without cause, but we don't really search it out very seriously. The Buddha taught us to realize that the world is like this. He could find peace because he knew things according to the truth. What is this about? Let's use an analogy. Have you ever seen monkeys? Are they calm and peaceful? Are there any calm monkeys? That's the way monkeys are. Climbing around all the time. Wherever there are monkeys, they act that way. But maybe you get upset when you see them. You feel they should sit still and not be climbing and jumping all over. It might make you so angry that you're even ready to kill them. But have you ever seen a tranquil monkey? One that can be still. The way we can train human beings to meditate and behave calmly. There's no such thing apart from a monkey that's dead. So, what should you do? Should you try to force them to be otherwise? You should realize that this is just the way monkeys are. Every monkey in the universe will carry on like this. If you see one and understand it clearly, you know all monkeys. You will let it be what it is, because that is the way of monkeys. Whether or not the monkey is calm, your own feeling about it is another matter, and that can be calm. Let monkeys be monkeys without getting emotionally involved. Peace can be born within you, because you know the way monkeys are. Knowing the manner of monkeys, you'll let go and be at peace, not getting tied up in monkey business. You see them and realize monkeys are like that. You go somewhere else and see monkeys and you think, monkeys are like that. There's no ill will on your part, because monkeys are like that. That's all. But if you want monkeys to be calm, uh, uh, then you reap suffering. That's not how the Buddha wanted you to resolve things. You should resolve them by knowing according to the truth. If you keep looking into it, you'll come to realize that it's beyond your ability to alter things, so you have to release them, let go. Wisdom that knows the way phenomena are, knowing they are thus, and letting them be thus, brings peace to the mind. There'll be no doubt. The world is the same. The Buddha is said to be the one who knows the world clearly, just as we know monkeys clearly. The world has to be like that. Usually people come to recognize this because nature has ripened for them. They've had a lot of experiences. Then they may hear just a little dharma and they look back with great regret. Oh, I've been suffering for so many years just because I wanted to make things a certain way. Not just many years. It's possible to go on until you die if you keep thinking in the same old way and don't let go. You'll never see the place of peace. You'll never see the place where you can let go. Things are a certain way, but you want them to be otherwise. And it can't happen. Whatever is the truth of phenomena, this is what you need to see. 
So this is, uh, again, some very pithy teachings here. Um, the, uh, uh, firstly, that um, part about the, well, the, all the things that the Buddha taught, that which is beyond being practiced by people doesn't exist. Uh, that come, brings to mind the, um, one of the doubts that he had when he went to see Venerable Ajahn Man, that uh, Ajahn Chah had been uh, studying the Visuddhimagga, carrying it, to, to trying to fulfill all of the, the guidance and instruction that was there in the Visuddhimagga, which is this huge compendium written by um, uh, Acharya Buddhaghosa. And it's ex- extremely comprehensive. And in the, 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 the chapter on virtue, it goes through all of the, the 13 Dutanga practices in great detail on how to carry out each of these ascetic practices to the, to the finest degree. And, um, uh, and Ajahn Chah had, was extremely sincere and very energetic and dedicated and had a high tolerance for dukkha. <laughs> he he uh, came to the conclusion that you can't do this. this, uh, this the, what Acharya Buddhaghosa is, is describing, this is more than one human being can do. It's, this is, I've tried it, and I've put everything I can into it, and this is physically impossible. You can't live this way. And so he, he went to, to uh, Achan Man and, and asked this question, you know, I've been trying to follow this kind of guidance. And, and it's, it's rather like the um, Mrs. Beaton's cookbook um, that the few Brits will be familiar this this massive cookbook that um, uh, was sort of a, a, a very familiar presence in many homes for many years, but in, written in Victorian times. Mrs. Beaton didn't actually cook all the recipes in her cookbook. She gathered them together. Again, it would be kind of impossible to cook every single dish that's uh, there in this great big big tome, so I understand. But uh, yeah, she didn't actually cook all of them, but she put the recipes together and published Mrs. Beaton's cookbook. So the Visudhi Maga was a compendium put together by Acharya Buddhaghosa, and, that, uh, and it's very clear that, that um, it wasn't as, as he did every single practice or followed through every single detail personally, but he put it all together as a, as a compendium. So when uh, Ajahn Chah asked, uh, as a young uh, wandering monk, asked the Venerable Ajahn Man, um, then uh, his response was something along the lines of, all of this came from one mind, all the, the Visuddhi Magga, it all came from, from the, that, that one mind of uh, Acharya Buddhaghosa, it all came from that, that, so just bring it back to your own mind. And the thing to, to do, rather than dwelling on all of the, the you know, 10,000, Hundred thousand details is establish a clear appreciation of hiri and otapa, of these um, sources of moral direction, the the uh, the um, say moral sensitivity and the um, the wise uh, fear of consequences, and then let the rest follow from that. And so that was quite life changing advice for for the young Ajahn Chah from Ajahn Man. And again, now he's talking about um, causes. Uh, if you <laughs> uh, if you are uh, suffering because your children uh, won't listen to you, then this, uh, or as, that, as an example, uh, well, who made these children? Um, that's somewhat a bit blunt or dismissive, <laughs> but it also it's a um, uh, I don't know how many times over the years uh, when I've been you know, people have come for advice with their about their children or with their children right there with them. And uh, yeah, and uh, more often than not, I'll uh, uh, I'll point out that the, the issue is much more with the parents than with the children because you have this 
set of expectations, even the people I've only just met, you can uh, the way they're talking, and the, what they've got in mind for their children, or they're just not appreciating where their children are at, and they've got the fixed, these are my kids, and they're going to do this and do this and do this, and that's what's right for them. And so, uh, yeah, I would say nine times out of ten, uh, it, it's, it's the parents <laughs> trying to change the parents' attitude that I'll focus upon. When I was living in the States, there was um, uh, a couple who were living in the in the Midwest, and um, uh, they had three children. And the mother was was, in, was incredibly distressed. She said, "I'm really, really worried about my my youngest child. You know, it's, he's really going in a, a really, really bad direction." And I'm so upset. And I thought, you know, "Is he drug dealing? Is he in a gang? You know, what, is he a heroin addict? You know, what's the?" Uh, what's the, the issue? And the issue was he wanted to be a social worker <laughs> rather, rather than to be a doctor. And I was really, it was, I, was, I confess, I was quite challenged to be polite. But that, that was a disaster, the kind of, that was going to ruin his life and it was a terrible thing for the family. He was a sweet guy. And she said she, want, she had him going to a psychiatrist. Uh, and uh, really, uh, uh, I won't mention names, but she, had, he made, made her go, she made him go to a psychiatrist and all these tests. And, and the, the, the great ailment was that he wanted to be a social worker. He didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> but, yeah, so I had to really watch my speech like, because she was so sincere, she was really quite tearful. This is a terrible thing. You know, that, that, well, okay, let's talk about that. Is she, a, is hmm? she a Asian? Asian mom? I won't mention. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so being aware of our expectations for each other, and it works in monasteries as well. If I have expectations about how other people are supposed to be, and that I've been saying this or doing that or encouraging this. How can you think like that? Or how can you operate that way? That, then that's dukkha right there. So to reflect upon uh, the the bigger picture and the, the the fundamental nature of reality. So then we have this wonderful example about monkeys, which is um, a very um, pertinent, especially if you've grown up in Asia or Africa. You know, uh, you will have seen and lived with monkeys and recognized that it's, it's largely that way. In India, they do. there's a particular kind of monkey called the langur, who are a bit more languid. I'm not sure if we get the English word languid from langurs, but they are, they are a bit more dignified. The, 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 the rhesus monkeys, the, the bandar, are a bunch of bandits. <laughs> they're, they're, they're kind of fidgety, restless, and they're, they're the ones who... You know, snatch your bag of samosas out of your hand and run up a tree and <laughs> smile at you, you know, while they're chomping down on your what was going to be your your breakfast. Um, so the bandar are a bunch of crooks, but the la- the langur I was impressed. I, I spent a, a year in India, so the, I, the langur are quite dignified. They've got these very very long tails, and they seem to be quite protective and proud of their tails. They're very cool. <laughs> yeah. They, they're, they're quite sort of, um, uh, careful about how they... Because their tails are very, very long. And, uh, and even though Lumpur Chah says, you've never seen a tranquil monkey, the, the most tranquil langur I ever saw, I was in the Jeta, I spent the rains retreat close to the Jetavana in the Korean temple, and I go and, sit, go and sit and meditate every day in, the, in, the, in, in Jeta's grove. 
and uh, I had this little patch to to the west of where the Gandakuti is, the Buddha's Kuti, under some the shade of some trees. And uh, one day there was this um, this mother langur, and she was sitting on a, a low branch of the tree, and, and her tail was hanging down, so parallel to the trunk. And she had uh, two or three uh, babies, maybe three or four babies, with her. And the babies were having a, a great time. They were climbing up the trunk and then climbing over their mother's back and then, then coming down the tail <laughs> and then swinging on the tail and then jumping from the tail onto the tree trunk. It like, just like in a kind of movie, a kind of cartoon. And you could feel the mother's patience, like, I will not react, they are my children. <laughs> they are touching my tail. They are swinging on my tail. That'd be cool. I was, I confess, I was probably projecting a little bit. But, uh, she was absolutely still. She just sat on the branch, didn't move, and the kids were kind of running up and down and playing their kind of swinging game and then jumping onto the trunk and then, and then running up again. And over and over. It was, it was, uh, that was my meditation that, uh, that day. But uh, she was very notably still for a, for a monkey and uh, that sort of sense of letting the kids have their fun. The, 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 the babies were having a great time uh, climbing down her tail and swinging on it. But, uh, I could feel that uh, one does not touch a langur's tail lightly. That they're, they're very kind of proud of their, their, those, uh, that piece of their life. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave it there for, um, for today. And... Uh, We'll go on to the questions and answers uh, next time.